I think that we're seeing a bit of a format rebellion going on. And I think the consumption of vinyl is an anti-streaming statement in some ways. Today on Better Things, we're exploring how to be a rebel with a leading music scholar. Who are some rebels in today's music industry? Why are some rebels lauded while others are written off? We look at all that and more. Here's Sam. My name's Sam Bennett and I'm Associate Professor in Music at the School of Music at the ANU. So we're here today to talk about how to be a rebel, focusing mainly on mainstream music today. So when I think of what a rebel is, I Mm. think of someone who does things a little bit differently, someone Mm -hmm. who challenges institutions and authorities Mm. and the status quo. Mm -hmm. Do you think that about covers it? I think that about covers it. I think it's somebody who uh, generally goes up against established structures, whether that's establishments, um, and certainly challenges the way things are. And um, I think a lot of rebellion comes down to a drive for wanting change. So a high-profile example from this year of rebellion in the music industry, in the mainstream Mm. music industry, was Lil Nas X with his song Old Town Road. Mm. So what do you think it was that made this song more than just another track that crosses genre boundaries and and something that made it that Mm. much more? Yeah, I think um, it was certainly a song and a performance um, that challenged a lot of established structures. So I think today when we think about the music industry, we think of it as being predominantly in the online sphere. There's this perception that the music industry is somehow being democratised, that anyone can, you know, write a song and you can make a video, you can put it on YouTube, you can get it up on SoundCloud and anybody's music can be put on Spotify pretty much overnight now. Um, However, it's not quite that simple and we still have major label structures and we still have award structures that are very much ingrained in terms of what constitutes particular genres, what kinds of performances are considered hip-hop performances or country performances or metal performances or jazz performances institutionally in terms of the music industry there are still gatekeepers we still have a major label structure and with that we still have actually quite narrow ideas still about what sorts of aesthetics constitute particular genres so I think first of all Old Town Road presented a musical challenge in terms of you've got a very contemporary hip-hop artist a trap track, which is what it fundamentally is, bringing in all of those kind of country sounds, the country aesthetics, the country lyrics and the overall sound. And then the remix with Billy Ray Cyrus, who is a, you know, he epitomizes country music. You've basically got a type of music existing in a space where it's not normally found and vice versa. So you've got a hip hop and trap existing in a country space and you've got country existing in a hip hop and trap space. And I think musically that presented a massive challenge to the industry. Mm, And I guess race would be another factor too. Absolutely, because popular music has never just been about the music. It's about everything else. It's about who's performing it, who's writing it, where they're writing it, 
and the particular demographic that that performer or that composer or musician comes from or belongs to. Um, and of course, it does make a massive difference in terms of geography, in terms of race and ethnicity, um, in terms of that artist's religious affiliation, certainly in terms of gender, um, in terms of sexuality. And what we're seeing at the moment, because obviously popular music now, um, the post-war popular music industry is coming up for 70 years old, we're now dealing with age and ageism. So there are a whole range of factors that go into how popular music is received and whether or not it's received as something stereotypical and particularly indicative of a genre or, or a particular style or whether it's seen to challenge that. Um, and I think so with Lil Nas X, it was the perfect example of challenges on just about every level. You have a very young, openly gay, African-American trap artist who is out there and visible and making this extraordinary, incredibly constructed popular music track and then positioning it in the country domain, which is largely associated with the Southern Bible Belt. It has uh, strong Christian aff affiliations. It obviously has affiliations to white communities. And so to that end, we're seeing challenges on numerous levels there. Mm. Yeah. So another artist who pushes genre boundaries mm. uh, is Cat Hope, an Australian oh, yes. musician. Yeah. So a bit less well-known than Lil Nas X, but mm. certainly someone still very much worth sharing with the audience and telling them about. Could you tell us a bit about Cat Hope? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, Cat Hope is a professor of music and she's the current head of school at Sir Zelman Cowan School of Music. And um, I wanted to include her in this discussion because she actually visited and gave a, a great talk um, at our school a couple of weeks ago on her noise opera called Speechless which was written and performed in response to the 2014 Human Rights Commission report into the forgotten children. So it was crafted along the lines of a, of a political statement. Now, I think what was so extraordinary about that and what inspired me so much hearing from her and hearing about not just how she composed it, but also how she involved various different collaborators. So, for example, the lead singers were drawn from opera. They were drawn from metal. Um, she involved a performance artist who specialises in kind of noise vocalisations um, and others, and also members of the various communities in which the opera was performed. It wasn't traditionally notated either, so the way that it was notated also challenged conventions as well. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't notated in, in the traditional way. Um, the instrumentation was certainly not traditional, and the actual performance was hugely visual as well. Her opera gained rave reviews and... I just think it's a fantastic example of somebody who's willing to really challenge what is an extraordinarily 
structured institution. I mean, the in, the institution of opera itself and and the connotations of that dates back centuries. It's very, very well established in Europe and proliferated all over the world. So for somebody to come along and say, well, you know, I'm going to use a heavy metal artist and, you know, we're going to use vocalizations and we're not going to notate it traditionally and we're going to use all of these unusual instruments and the entire narrative is going to be a challenge to uh, government policy. I just thought it was absolutely extraordinary and a great example of a... Um, of a contemporary Australian composer going up against um, an established format. So speaking of format then, Mm. uh, Jack White was somebody who we were going to talk about because he has really been forging his own path since his earlier kind of more mainstream engagement, I suppose. Um, Yeah. So post-White Stripes. Yeah, that's right. What is it that Jack White's been up to? Oh, well, he's a he's another very interesting case. And um, we're covering some some very diverse um, individuals and um, topics here. But I would think of Jack White and what he's doing at the moment with his record label, which is called Third Man Records, and it's based in Detroit. And he has, in the last couple of years, built a vinyl pressing plant. Um, and he's employed people from the local area. And he has also had built some brand new uh, vinyl cutting lathes and is doing a roaring trade, signing up artists and just printing vinyl all day, every day. I think Jack White's Third Man Records is sort of indicative of a kind of a format rebellion that's going on at the moment. With Jack White, we're talking about formats and technology and the ways in which the production of vinyl, which is something that is very much associated with the dawn of the record industry. The 50s, 60s and 70s were the golden age of vinyl. Obviously, 80s and 90s were more CD, but the resurgence and the upswing in the consumption of that format on a global level, it's not just older individuals sort of age 50 plus who remember vinyl the first time around and they're going out and buying it, but it's young people and record companies are not just reissuing all the Beatles and David Bowie stuff and all of the, you know, all of the Motown records and everything and Blue Note jazz records, which, yes, they are being reissued. But alongside that, we're also seeing brand new artists' albums coming out on vinyl. You know, you can walk into a record store today and, yes, you'll see all of the all of the Blue Note stuff there. You'll see... Jimi Hendrix on vinyl, David Bowie on vinyl, Rolling Stones records on vinyl, and then you'll see Kendrick Lamar on vinyl um, and Drake on vinyl and Kanye West on vinyl. And these are not artists that are that were ever associated to an original vinyl era. So um, I think the tangibility of the format is certainly a factor in that. But I also think that the very concept of vinyl and the aesthetics of vinyl represent everything that the digital domain isn't you know and to that end I think that we're seeing a bit of a format rebellion going on and I think the consumption of vinyl is an anti-streaming statement in some ways. So that's format rebellion on the Mm. part of consumers. But I think it's coming from artists as well I mean just on a ground level in Australia um, I know so many bands and musicians who are now aspiring to have their music released on vinyl to the point where just in the last kind of three to five years, 
it seems that vinyl has become a sort of a marker of authenticity again in that oh okay so you've released your music on Spotify it's all up on SoundCloud it's all up on Bandcamp it's all up on YouTube um anyone can do that have is it out on vinyl and it's really strange how that's become sort of this this marker again of of significance um in saying that, of course, now we don't need um, record labels or record companies to press vinyl. I mean, I've seen so many independent artists just doing it themselves or printing vinyl small runs just um, on their own labels. It, it's possible to do. It, it's still quite expensive and there are still significant issues with the um, acquisition of cutting lathes because, of course... They were made in the 50s and 60s and everyone threw them on a skip in the late 90s because who on earth was buying vinyl? And now, of course, there's all of this um, demand that the price of the lathes has gone up. And so, um, I mean, I've heard of extraordinary bidding wars over that. And I think that's why Jack White ended up having his lathes built from scratch because of, of that reason. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting, this kind of conflation of... Um, industry trends as well as sort of the consumption of formats and what those formats represent yeah getting back to artists there are three particular musicians Lizzo Billie Eilish and Madonna who challenge particular ideas we have about body image and sexuality especially as it relates to women in music can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are three women who, um, all three of which have had albums out this year, as we know, and all three have um, have had extraordinary careers for, for very different reasons. And I mean, Billie Eilish is somebody who, at 17 years old, is, is obviously extremely young for the level of success that she's had. She's playing arenas all over the world and her her debut album is already a, a platinum seller and was made in her in her bedroom with her brother. Um, it's just such an extraordinary accomplishment. And yet the reception of her as an artist has been largely focused on her image, which for women is not at all uncommon. And in fact, that's the norm. It's um, in terms of press and in terms of media attention, often the first point of focus and the main point of focus is what the female looks like before we talk about their music. And so in the case of Billie Eilish, her album has got to be one of the most innovative genre-wise popular music albums released in the 21st century so far. I think it breaks a lot of boundaries in terms of industrial, EDM, pop. Um, there's some hard rock influences in there as well. And yet we're focused on this idea that why doesn't she look like other girls her own age? Why isn't she wearing skimpy clothes? Why is she wearing these oversized baggy clothes? There was this um, incident, I think it was a few weeks ago, where she was photographed at a fan's um, meet and greet in a tank top. And just the media um, frenzy over her chest. And it's like, well... Well, not only is she, she's 17 years old, but secondly, like surely she should be able to go out and wear whatever it is she wants. And can we not please concentrate on this girl's music and how deeply inappropriate it is to be sexualizing an under 18 girl? So I think she's done extraordinarily well 
to hold herself up in the way that she has under what must be extreme pressure at such a young age. Um, But as she said in a recent interview, she can't win. And I think that's the feeling that a lot of prominent female musicians get is that is that they can't win they're, they're kind of damned if they do and they de- and they're damned if they don't and Billie Eilish said herself she said if I did want to make a music video or if I did want to put on a stage performance where I do want to look desirable or I do want to foreground my sexuality I'll get hammered for that too so it doesn't matter if I do it or if I don't do it, I'm going to get hammered either way. And I think that's exactly the same as somebody like if we move on and we're talking about Lizzo, who again, what will I'm absolutely certain go down as an iconic album cover of her naked image. She's um, an African-American woman of size. And the cover of Because I Love You is just is a portrait, is a naked portrait photograph of her. And she's She's been very openly celebratory about her body. Just the other week, I think it was on Halloween, she posted an Instagram picture of herself lying naked in the bath, covered in Skittles. Um, Just absolutely fantastic. And yet, not only critiqued, but people then keep telling her, oh, you're so brave. Oh, you're so courageous. Oh, you know, that's so sort of um, uh, uh, courageous of you to be doing this. And She's just being herself and reading interviews with her and listening to her speak on, um, on, on the radio. She said, actually, you know, I'm just putting myself out there. This is who I am. It's got nothing to do with, oh, I have to be brave to do this or I have to be courageous to do this. And you wouldn't say that about models in vogue or you wouldn't say that if you walk past a billboard of a woman advertising a swimsuit, you wouldn't look up at that and go, oh, she's so brave. But because A, she's African-American and because B, she's a woman of size, somehow that is, you know, oh, you're brave and courageous. And what it's indicative of is an industry where we're used to seeing extremely narrow, very one-dimensional images of how women should look. And when we think about Billie Eilish as a 17-year-old wearing oversized, often masculine clothes, or we see Lizzo, who is in her early 30s, a large African-American woman, and we're talking about Madonna, who is now in her early 60s, and she's just come out with an album with a very strong kind of uh, dominatrix-style image. When we see these women, whether it's a 17-year-old EDM artist or a 31, 32-year-old African-American R&B pop artist, or whether it's a 62-year-old pop artist, we are seeing images of women that are not routinely present in the music industry. And I think that whilst that presents a challenge to established structures, I'm not sure that we can interpret that as rebellion because it's women being themselves it's just that there's a very narrow perception of what women should be so these are women who are present in a space and we're not we're simply not used to seeing that and for a lot of people that presents a challenge Hmm. 
So there are a lot of people who swim against the tide and mm. do things differently yeah. and only some of them are sort of championed and accepted and lauded and mm. others of them are derided and presented as sort of weirdos or mm. outcasts. Yeah. Why do you think some rebels manage to resonate with us while others seem to alienate us? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and I think that it depend a lot depends on the political climate, um, and a lot depends on where the rebellion is coming from, and who is the individual or who is the group doing the rebelling. It's interesting how we accept we accept male rebels far more than we accept female rebels. When you think of how somebody like Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones has been lauded as a hero pretty much his entire career and that his well-documented drug abuse has been celebrated as something, you know, oh, he's he's still alive. He's made it through all of this, you know, through all of these years of, of sex, drugs and rock and roll and that that is sort of considered almost a badge of honour and that he's presented as this heroic survivor. And when you contrast that with how somebody like Amy Winehouse was treated, who also was very public about her battle with addiction and with drug abuse, and yet... The treatment of her was, well, well, she was absolutely hounded until her death and also beyond that as well. And so I think a lot depends on who you are and your position in the industry. Just talking about Keith Richards there just reminded me of Mick Jagger and how he's been seen as a rebel his entire life. And I think it was a few months ago a video of him in a white vest and fitness pants dancing in his dance studio and rehearsing for his um, his upcoming shows was circulated widely on social media. Um, he's 75 years old now and was just painted as this heroic kind of amazing man that no one could stop this incredible front man of an ultimate rock band and it's like well hold on a minute he's 15 years older than Madonna who's concurrently getting hammered for presenting any kind of sexuality in her early 60s so it's really interesting how for some musicians they are allowed to age or they're allowed to be large musicians or they are allowed to rebel in some way, whereas for others, they're really not. And they can be ostracized or just put down to, oh, you know, um, what a mess they're in or something like that and written off, which is what happened to Amy Winehouse in her last couple of years. Mm. Mm. And I think with Lil Nas X, there mm. is a combination of the who he is, but also the message that he had to tell and what he represents and how these things align with the current climate and the sorts of um, ideas that we are wanting to challenge that the mm. institutions are still, I guess, holding fast to. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that was epitomised in the billboard scandal where they wouldn't consider the track as country and there was a whole backlash against that and it just goes to show how completely ingrained industry structures and expectations um, are and sometimes we can see how even the music industry then takes ideas of rebellion and takes ideas of challenge and then 
corporatizes that and then presents that as something to sell. And just getting back to the little Nas X example, I just think what he did with the Old Town Road is um, is challenging on so many levels, but particularly in terms of genre and therefore mainstream industry structures. Some ideas or standards that are the subject of rebellion and some artists who once were considered rebels become normalised and folded into the mainstream. Then some of those end up becoming corporatized. Yes, absolutely. Is there a particular example of corporatization that particularly gets your goat? Oh, well, there's a few. Um, I think um, it's fair to say that one genre that epitomizes rebellion, that the, the fundamental aesthetic is rebellion, is punk. And, um, you know, it's very much established sort of 1970s US, UK, and then it's proliferated all over the world. Punk is kind of a global aesthetic now. But it, it was very much based on anti-establishment values, extreme politics, particularly anarchism and the far left and communism and things like that. Um, Certainly in the 1970s, I can think of one band, an anarchist punk band in the UK called Crass, who had this fantastic and very iconic uh, logo of sort of two intertwined snakes, and there was the, and there's a cross in the middle of it, and they and they never copyrighted it, and they never had it trademarked, and it really is a very strong symbol of um, of being anti-establishment and of being punk, and it epitomizes anarchist punk and anarchist punk values and and ways of life. And I remember seeing a documentary about them and how the fashion designer Jean-Paul Gaultier had taken the logo, put it on a T-shirt with Zwarovski crystals and then had David Beckham modelling it and Angelina Jolie walking around in it. And it was just, it was really interesting how this symbol of the most sort of extreme anarchist punk you could ever hear. I mean, we're really talking the extreme ends of punk ends up on a catwalk with David Beckham or something like that. I mean, and and the Ramones is another great example. I mean, you know, four down and out guys from, from downtown New York playing CBGBs in the Bowery in the 1970s. And, and now you can walk into H&M or Cotton On and get your Ramones t-shirt for 15 bucks or however much. And, um, um, and of course, these sorts of capitalist structures, punk never belonged anywhere near that. It was completely anti-capitalist. It was completely anti-sort of corporations. However, punk as a genre of it sells. And the music industry has found ways of harnessing that and um, and making that work for them, and now of course we have punk bands that sell that sell millions of copies. I mean, a band like Green Day, they're a multi platinum selling artist working within that that whole structure. Um, that's quite an interesting paradox, that one. So it's all good and well to rail against something, yeah. But what do you think is the function that rebels perform? Mm. Does the world need rebels? 
Well, I think we do, and I think we need them more than ever. I mean, when you think of one of the most prominent organisations at the moment, our Extinction Rebellion. I mean, rebellion is obviously embodied in their name, and the biggest challenge we face at the moment is climate change. It's all interrelated, of course, but there are major economic and political challenges that we face in our world, and we're seeing we're living in extremely divisive political times, and I think that we need musicians to stand up more than ever. I mean, particularly about the climate. I don't think we're yet to see that in the breadth and in the depth that we need to. And I think over the next couple of years, and certainly into the future, we're going to be seeing more of that. I think we'll be seeing far more artists making stronger statements about climate change. I think we'll be seeing more artists getting on board with Extinction Rebellion. I do, however, think that rebelling, particularly um, in today's music industry, is also very difficult because a lot of prominent artists have whole teams behind them. They have managers, they have publicists. Some of them are under independent and major record labels. I think it is seen as a risk to come out and challenge certain structures and certain politics and it presents risks not only artistically but creatively financially and I think that well and I know I'm, I'm certainly aware of um, of quite a few artists who've been told no don't comment on this issue or that issue or the other issue because we can't risk a backlash or or whatever so I think we're living in extremely challenging times and I think that musicians will always have a role to play in challenging structures and establishment systems. They'll always do it whether they can always do as much as they would like to do is another question. Well all the power to the rebels in music or otherwise. Sam Bennett thanks very much for talking to me. Well thank you very much for having me. Better Things is brought to you by the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. This show is produced by me, Ivana Ho, and my production assistant for this episode was Brandon Tan. The theme music is One More Time by Fab Beat. This was a final episode for this season of Better Things. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do share it with your friends and frenemies. And if you haven't already, check out the last episode for 2019 of This Academic's Life, featuring Indigenous historian Dr. Lawrence Bamblett. Laurie discusses life on a Rambi mission and the research project he's part of that seeks to find a new paradigm beyond reconciliation. I do hope you've enjoyed hearing these insights on how to approach the world to live a better life. See you next year.